0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today, let's get right into it. On your screen is the Xbox Plus Bethesda key art that was brought out when Microsoft said they were going to purchase ZeniMax and their constituent studios. Now, that acquisition is still pending if you didn't realize it, which means that people are still making articles about whether or not it will go through. One of those articles was posted yesterday by GamesBeat and VentureBeat, and it was entitled Bethesda Faces Broad Class Action Lawsuit Over Fallout 4 DLC as Microsoft Takeover Looms. Now, I saw this article go up yesterday, but I have to admit, I didn't think I'd be talking about it in virtual legality, primarily because it's really only from the plaintiff's side of things. It doesn't do any of the kind of critical thinking or application of legal principles that we're used to here in virtual legality. It doesn't get the other side of the score and instead stands for the premise effectively that a lawsuit over Fallout 4 DLC, which isn't new, is years old, could potentially stand in the way of Microsoft's acquisition of ZeniMax and Bethesda. Now, if you're only interested in my answer to the question of whether or not this could actually happen, the answer is very, very unlikely. It is very unlikely that a lawsuit of this type could actually get in the way of an acquisition of that size and stature and of importance to both constituent parties. But it's worthwhile to talk about how an article like this gets out there. Why? Because even though I was going to ignore it, others didn't. Games Industry Biz put up an article today that says Bethesda faces lawsuit over Fallout 4 DLC, which could delay Microsoft's ZeniMax takeover. And this particular article, because Games Industry Biz is a good source, was brought to me by a number of folks in my mentions and social media feeds and everywhere else, which means that I think we should talk about it here in virtual legality. So let's do that. In the article, Bethesda Software... And its parent firm, ZeniMax Media, are about to face some uncomfortable questions in a class action lawsuit about how they treated the loyal fans of the 2015 hit game Fallout 4. It's not unreasonable to think it could be a billion-dollar-plus liability, the lawyer's claim. Now, that the lawyer's claim is doing a lot of work here. As we see in the very next se- sentence, spokespeople for Bethesda and Microsoft declined to comment for this story as entities are wont to do in the face of pending or existent litigation. This is an article entirely built off of interviews and slides and claims by the plaintiff's counsel, the class action folks that will eventually get paid if they have anything remotely resembling a successful class action lawsuit against bethesda now there's nothing wrong with that our adversarial system in the united states and other jurisdictions calls for plaintiffs and defendants calls for folks to make their best and biggest claims but there is a problem when journalists and outlets like venturebeat and gamesbeat go out with so little kind of critical analysis of what is being claimed in front of them and instead present it primarily as fact let's talk about what the case actually is first though Fallout 4's Smashing Success was a huge hit when it shipped in 2015, sold an estimated 13.5 million copies, or an estimated $810 million at the retail price, which we all know all copies of Fallout 4 wouldn't have been sold at. And then on September 9th, 2015, two months before the game shipped, the Bethesda team announced it was selling a season pass for $30 that would entitle gamers to a lifetime of DLC. We've always done a lot of DLC for our games. We love making them, and you always ask us for more, Bethesda said in a post according to the lawsuit. Now, you actually don't have to take the lawsuit on its face value for this. You can see all sorts of articles around the internet from September of 2015. I've pulled up a Eurogamer one now that talks about the actual post that Bethesda made. It's interesting to note, however, if you follow any of these links, they don't actually link to the post, so Bethesda might have taken it down. All of the Fallout 4 DLC we ever do will be yours for $30. We know it will be worth at least $40 and if we do more, you'll get it with a season pass. You also saw advertising like this. With the Fallout 4 season pass, get access to all future downloadable content for one special, as an acronym, as is the Fallout way, price. So it certainly seems like Bethesda was saying, all DLC is yours for whatever price you wound up paying for the season pass. However... In June of 2017, Bethesda announced something called Creation Club. The company characterized Creation Club as a collection of all new content for both Fallout 4 and Skyrim. It features new items, abilities and gameplay created by Bethesda Game Studios and outside development partners, including the best community creators. Creation Club content is fully curated and compatible with the main game and official add-ons. While it sounded like mods or community-created modifications for the game, it was really DLC mostly created by Bethesda itself, said Filippo Marchino and Thomas Gray, attorneys at the class-action law firm The X Group. Players like Jacob Devine of California thought they were entitled to that DLC based on the promises that Bethesda made in the past. He bought a season pass in April 2019 at a GameStop store. Now, if you're keeping track at home, That date probably doesn't make a ton of sense for bringing a lawsuit, or at least not an obvious one, right? We have the game coming out in 2015. We have the season pass announced before the game is released, also in 2015. We have the Creation Club announced in 2017, and a lot of turmoil around that announcement. In fact, this article that I previously showed you that had the advertising for the season pass was entitled, Does Fallout 4 Season Pass Include Creation Club Content?, and discussed how Bethesda was not offering Creation Club content under their season pass back in 2017. So looking at this just from afar, a lead plaintiff that has a purchase in April of 2019 is going to have some hurdles to overcome. There are going to be questions about what they knew, what they didn't know, how they could have... Not known that the Creation Club was not included in the season pass at the time that it's two years later after the announcement of that endeavor. And maybe you get Bethesda on continued marketing efforts as late as April 2019, but it is undoubtedly a more difficult task than finding a lead plaintiff that actually purchased it in 2015. So you already have some kind of cracks in the edifice here, not brought up by GamesBeat or VentureBeat because primarily this article is being used as a bullhorn For the plaintiffs' attorneys, continuing, as the plaintiffs' attorneys say, they released a limited amount of DLC. Bethesda did. Then they released a second wave of DLC, but decided to call it the Creation Club content and artificially removed it from the definition of DLC, meaning that they promised people at the outset, "We will give you everything we made," and then they reneged on that promise, and they did so to their benefit or the detriment of the plaintiffs. So that's where they did something wrong. They lied. Now. I've criticized this article for only taking the plaintiff's side, and I will certainly criticize it more as we get towards the latter parts of the article where Microsoft and Bethesda is apparently at risk for a lawsuit of this type. But that all being said, I don't think that this sounds like a terribly bad case. Certainly, what they can show is that Bethesda said you get all the DLC. DLC is not a terribly great term of art standing only for downloadable content, which arguably encompasses even mods. It's very difficult when you get into the court of law and the legal jurisdiction to start to argue about, for instance, what's apps versus applications, what's downloadable content that's not downloadable content, even though it's clearly content that is downloadable. Uh, the industry in and of itself would probably be well advised to start getting better definitions around these things, especially if they're going to try to slice the onion on things like season passes and paid mods that we're not really going to call mods, and we're going to call creation clubs and things like that. But oftentimes, marketing gets ahead of the lawyers a little bit, and these are the kinds of things that can result. On behalf of the 19-year-old Divine, the x law group filed a lawsuit against Bethesda for false advertising on July 9th, 2019. So GamesBeat and VentureBeat is picking up this story in February of 2021 for a lawsuit that was filed getting close to two years ago. And the question becomes why? How did this happen? It certainly seems to be the case that the plaintiffs in this particular action maybe sought out VentureBeat and GamesBeat, or maybe just wanted to present their case at a time that was what they feel of maximum leverage. Right, Microsoft is about to buy Bethesda. Bethesda is about to be sold. Litigation in the face of an acquisition like that can be a hurdle to be overcome, and these companies can just want them to go away. Right? Because at bare minimum, a litigation that has a chance of success represents a liability on your books. And when you're trying to sell your company, you don't want a largely variable liability on those books, so maybe you're now a little bit more inclined to settle. And if I were to be a cynical strategist here reading an article like this one, I would suggest that the plaintiffs sought out a sympathetic interviewer to make their case that they could potentially block the sale and otherwise cause trouble for Microsoft and Bethesda so that those companies would be incentivized to just pay them and get them out of the way. But it doesn't mean their case is entirely bad. We do see, however, that this is exactly what Games Beat and Beat presents as the problem. This lawsuit might have to go away before Microsoft buys Bethesda for $7.5 billion. The lawsuit, which a copy I couldn't find online, either here or through Games Industry Biz or through my normal sources, appears to have been brought in Maryland, however, with breach of contract, unjust enrichment, promissory estoppel breaking a promise even in the absence of a legal contract, which is close enough for purposes of this conversation, deceit or fraud, fraudulent concealment, negligent misrepresentation, arising out of breach of contract, breach of express warranty, and a violation of Maryland's Consumer Protection Act. Wow, right? We've talked about a lot of lawsuits in virtual legality. This is what they look like. Plaintiffs try to put in one to 15 claims to try to make it as staunch as possible against the dismissals that will happen on at least some of these at its baseline i think they've got a reasonable case for some kind of fraud or breach of contract hey we promised you all the dlc we didn't deliver all the dlc sure that's a breach fraud something like misrepresenting in advertising that could also be something that you could bring the rest of these kind of attached to all of those concepts it doesn't look to me like a lawsuit that you can just get rid of out of hand it also doesn't look to me like a lawsuit that is worth 7.5 billion dollars or anything like it now Margaret Esconet, a counsel for Bethesda, filed an answer to the lawsuit denying most of the legal claims. We've asked for additional comment. On its face, Bethesda's defense is that the new content wasn't DLC, that there is something that looks like DLC, looks like expansions, looks like the things that they did for Oblivion and Skyrim and Fallout 3, and people should know what that is, give or take, and that the Creation Club is something different. Will that work? I don't know. It's a close question. Surprisingly, as the plaintiff's counsel claims, Fallout 4 didn't come with an end-user license agreement, which could have spelled out the details about what gamers were entitled to, Marchino said. It's surprising to me, said David Hopp. He's the managing partner at Gamma Law, a game industry-focused law firm. It's a surprising situation for a sophisticated company. Indeed, it is so surprising that I thought, hey, we should take a look at that. It would strike me as very odd that somebody releasing a video game in 2015 didn't have any concepts related to end-user licensing, and in fact, It proves to not be the case. If we look at the back of the PlayStation 4 box, for instance, we see that the software is subject to license and limited warranty, terms at the us.playstation.com slash software license, which is kind of the bare bones skeleton outline of a license that PlayStation provides for anybody that just wants to attach to it. It says, hey, the software is licensed to you, not sold. The license does not include the right to, and as a condition of this agreement, you agree not to. Do the various things we've talked about in other contexts. Rent it, modify it, reverse engineer it, create derivative works from it, copy it, all these various things. This is the very kind of bare bones way that you can have an end user license agreement cover you, but not perhaps as good as a more specific license. We also see a similar kind of concept attached to the Xbox sales of Fallout 4. Now, they don't actually reference anything like this from the Microsoft side. What they do is a very, very light license. For use only with Xbox One systems, that's a license, game disc and up to 40 gigs of storage required, etc., etc., unauthorized copying, reverse engineering, transmission, public performance, rental, pay-for-play, or circumvention of copy protection is strictly prohibited. So for whatever reason, at this point in time, it looks like ZeniMax and Bethesda were trying to do very short-form licenses. Why? Well... It might be the case that in November 2015, ZeniMax thought that they were covered with their own documentation. If we go in the Wayback Machine, we can look at an October 17th, 2015 version of the ZeniMax Terms of Service, which says, if you purchase services from an authorized ZeniMax reseller, including console manufacturers and other resellers, you will be making payments to such reseller for such services. But for clarity, these terms of service will apply to all such services as if such services had been purchased from ZeniMax. And then you see it apply all the things that we would expect. Hey, it's just a license. Hey, this is the stuff that covers your content. This is how virtual currency works. This is what we mean when we say we're licensing it to you, how beta tests work, etc., etc. Now, it's also worth noting that ZeniMax didn't use a separate end user license agreement, as best I can tell, solely for this game. You see the games where they have those specific end user license agreements. They seem to have only started relatively recently, maybe the the Dooms, maybe id was doing them a little bit more often uh, than Bethesda proper. But Fallout 4 is 100% covered in their definition for games, which is covered in their definition of services. So if you have something in the game uh, on the main screen or as a click-through or that you otherwise see that gets you into the ZeniMax terms of service, then you 100% entered into an end-user license agreement, which would be our expectation. But I do have to admit the plaintiffs have an interesting case because there isn't an obvious tie from these terms of service to Fallout 4 and of itself. If you look at where you might expect these kinds of things, we looked at the back of the box. That sent you to the PlayStation terms. If you look at the instruction book, it's a really short four-page instruction book. They have a warranty concept. They don't otherwise have a reference to the ZeniMax terms of service. So this could possibly be something that was overlooked. It is, however, also a bit of a red herring. Because it's unlikely that your ownership rights in a season pass bit of content that didn't exist when you bought your Fallout 4 or that didn't exist as part of your Fallout 4 purchase would actually be spelled out in that document. So they did have an end user license agreement. It was either very light in the case of Xbox or a skeleton as provided by Sony. They probably had a similar kind of concept at Steam and other places that you could find it. But it wasn't what we would expect to see in a modern 2021, or in this case, 2019 version of the end user license agreement. On top of that, they say it didn't say, the season pass, what was included in it, or what was the cutoff date for the pass when it came to future content. In fact, it was sold as not having a cutoff date at all. Marchino's legal team believes it should have been included in the season pass, the creation club content, which they have valued at $281 worth. Most of the Creation Club content is created internally, they say, which I think is actually pretty useful for their case. If Bethesda had said this was only made by creators and this is just a club to get you the best of the best, and yeah, we're going to curate it a little bit, then you still have a distinction between stuff that Bethesda makes as DLC and stuff that other people make. But Bethesda has gone out of their way to say that we not only approved and curated it, we also helped make it. In short, Creation Club content is indistinguishable... From DLC, including DLC released for Fallout 4 by defendants themselves. And again, like I said, I don't think this is a terribly bad case. We even have Pete Hines going out on Twitter and saying things like, Creation Club, it's like mini DLCs. It's not very good for their case. And I do think Bethesda probably has a potential problem here in terms of litigation. The plaintiffs continue. Listings for the season pass still say the purchasers will get all Fallout 4 DLC for one special price. No arbitration agreement was in place, as is often the case in purchases when Divine bought his season pass, Marcino added. Now, there is one in the Sony terms, and there is one in the ZeniMax terms, but you actually have to attach that to the sale, so it'll be interesting to see what Bethesda does on the whole. But this case isn't even close to fruition. The lawsuit isn't yet certified as a class action. That's usually a step that takes place with a certain amount of... Of rapidity. One difficulty they might be having, and I'm certainly not a fly on the wall in these kinds of discussions, is what time frame this should actually apply to. If this did apply to the original season pass purchasers, does it apply to their lead plaintiff here who bought it in 2019? When did Bethesda change their marketing, if at all? We can see on Steam that they don't currently refer to it as all DLC. They refer to the season pass as offering you all Fallout add-ons, dash, what it is they're talking about. Dash, $70 worth of content, all for one great price. So if you bought it today from the Steam page, you probably don't have the same kind of claim that somebody in this lawsuit does. So you have to certify that class. You have to set the parameters for who can actually bring the lawsuit. Continuing with the article, as Microsoft tries to close the transaction, Marchino said he is concerned about what Bethesda is telling Microsoft about the lawsuit. He said that he is concerned that Bethesda might try to shift its assets to a new legal entity and shield itself from any legal liability related to the class action lawsuit. Now, we already know that that is, in fact, not the case. We did a video last week, or maybe it was a week before, that said ZeniMax is not being renamed Vault because We got a direct explanation for what this acquisition is going to be. Microsoft's going to drop down a subsidiary. The subsidiary is going to merge into ZeniMax. ZeniMax is not going to change at all. What it's going to receive is $7.5 billion, which if you're looking at this from the perspective of a litigation plaintiff, Probably isn't the worst thing in the world. They're going to have assets to potentially pay your damages at the end of the day. Now, you might be able to get an escrow. You might be able to get some other protection for it, but there's really no indication why this should be blocked. And the fact that Zenimax might not exist isn't even on the table as best as anybody can tell. So that comes across as a bit disingenuous. Then they bring in a complete kind of non sequitur corollary, and that's the human head Ragnarok Fufaral. To give a legal term in which, as GamesBeat reports, Ragnarok sued Bethesda for $4.5 million in losses based on Human Head's employees being quote unquote stolen by ZeniMax. Now this in and of itself in GamesBeat is a wrong description for what's actually happening here. If we go and we look at what was filed in the Ragnarok game lawsuit, they're not asking for $4.5 million. That's what they say they invested. They're asking for no less than $100 million with an unspecified amount of damages higher than that and then for punitive damages and treble damages. So understand what this GamesBeat article is actually saying. They bring up this other lawsuit to try to establish that the Fallout 4 DLC lawsuit might be something that can stop Microsoft and Bethesda while simultaneously bringing up another lawsuit that's actually about stealing employees and getting in the way of actual contractual relationships with more than $100 million, which is maybe plausible, all the things that you have attached to the Fallout 4 DLC lawsuit and never the corollary is made that, okay, if this could potentially get in the way, which, as we've talked about, it probably can't, then what in the world could this lawsuit do? And the answer is also that it's unlikely to get in the way of a transaction like this one. Continuing the article, Possible Outcomes, that's why Marcino has filed papers to seek information and, if necessary, to block... Microsoft's $7.5 billion purchase of Bethesda. We have a very big concern, he says, because this class action we're engaged in is a proverbial bet the company litigation. Now, that's a term that you could probably intuitively understand. That means the litigation is worth more than the company itself. Now, please raise your hand if you think that a lawsuit over the failure to give creation club access to fallout four season pass holders is worth all of the assets that Bethesda has. Anyone? No? I don't think so either. And while the plaintiff is trying to present this as something that could be worth a whole lot of money, it's pretty disingenuous to suggest that it's worth $7.5 billion. However, they continue, it's curious to us that all of a sudden there is this rush to sell Framing this as if Bethesda is selling to Microsoft to avoid the impending doom of a 2019 class that hasn't yet been certified over a DLC definitional argument from 2015 through 2019. It liquidates the company and it prevents the millions of people that are members of the class from recovering money. Nope, wrong. It doesn't, no liquidation here. ZeniMax is going to get paid by Microsoft. ZeniMax is going to continue to exist. Why is ZeniMax going to continue to exist? Because as we talked about in that video, Microsoft wants ZeniMax to continue to exist. It wants the contract rights to Indiana Jones. It wants everything else that is currently being worked on. It doesn't want to deal with assignments and various other things. And when it does that, it takes on all the liabilities of the company that it is purchasing. So if you are in the shoes of somebody like the plaintiff's counsel here, In order to block this deal, you have to establish that you're going to win and you have to establish that Microsoft isn't somebody that can pay out if it came to it. And good luck with that because if there's any entity on earth that's good for it in terms of cash, it's Microsoft. So you've got this claim put forth in VentureBeat that is now being echoed across games journalism that has a very little chance of actually happening. And I see people in my timeline reacting to it And I just got to get in there and say, there's almost no chance that this will be blocked. What we're going to try and do is go in and ask a judge to stop the sale to preserve the assets. Now, preservation of assets is an important concept. It is described by plaintiff's counsel here as a motion for preliminary injunction. It's probably a little bit too generalized, as we know, from talking about preliminary injunctions in Epic versus Apple. In fact, what they're trying to do is they are trying to freeze the assets of Microsoft and Bethesda. And in the United States, that's really, really hard to do. As we talked about in the Epic versus Apple discussion, courts don't like to give prejudgments. They don't like to have to go through the extra step of giving somebody a win before everything has been properly adjudicated. This case has been going on for years now. As DLA Piper puts forth in their global intelligence briefing, attachment may be available as a prejudgment remedy under state statutes addressing the subject. Attachment meaning freezing assets. Federal courts may attach property to the extent permitted by the law of the state in which they sit. A plaintiff seeking prejudgment attachment may be required to post bond to cover any damage caused to defendants' property in the event that the plaintiff does not succeed on its claims. Can you imagine that? What is the bond necessary to be posted for stopping and or delaying a $7.5 billion acquisition. Does plaintiff have it? Does his counsel? What might the court ask? Okay, we'll stop this deal if you can post $15 billion in bonds. No? Then we'll proceed. Courts have recognized that attachment is a severe remedy that is appropriate only if the plaintiff produces evidence showing an appreciable risk of being unable to enforce a future judgment. If Microsoft buys ZeniMax, if ZeniMax then has $7.5 billion in assets, what will ZeniMax do with the $7.5 billion in assets? Could the court potentially ask for a special escrow, a third-party protection for some some or all of that cash? Sure they could. That doesn't stop the deal, of course. Or if they don't want to go that far, they turn to the plaintiff and they say, okay, Microsoft now owns ZeniMax liabilities. Do you really mean to tell the court... That you don't think that Microsoft can pay out a judgment against it if you win in this particular proceeding. Plaintiffs would have a very, very difficult time saying that Microsoft doesn't have the cash to do that. A court is likely to require a high burden of proof showing that the plaintiff will be entitled to relief once the litigation concludes. Broadly and generally, and you'll see a mirror here to what we talked about in Epic versus Apple, an applicant must show, this is what the plaintiffs have to show to the court, that the applicant is likely to prevail on the merits of its case. I think they have a good case. Does that rise to the level of being a likely win? It might. I think think it's a better case than most that we review in virtual legality, but it's not a slam dunk. And so that's going to be a potential problem in pursuing injunctive relief. The refusal of a writ of attachment, if we don't grant this particular defense mechanism to you, it will give rise to a real risk that the plaintiff will be unable to enforce any judgment, which we already talked about as being very difficult to establish. The balance of the equities favor the attachment. And that's where when you're bringing a fraud claim, you might get that one as well. If you think that Bethesda is a bad actor, if the court also thinks that Bethesda is a bad actor here, you might win balance of the equities. And then if the public interest favors the attachment, meaning that attachment must further an important interest beyond the claims in the litigation itself. You have to do all of those things, or at least the balance has to weigh in your favor in order for the court, before judgment has been realized against Bethesda, to prevent Bethesda from selling out its assets. And the court is going to not want to do this, right? The purchase price has already been set. The agreement has been agreed to. If the value of the assets at Bethesda change markedly over the time period here, you've got all sorts of lawsuits, all sorts of problems. And so they are going to be very reluctant to actually freeze Bethesda's assets unless you're just so far on the side of right that the court basically has no other choice. But at the same time, Microsoft is also protecting itself. If you don't know, here in virtual legality, I'm a corporate lawyer. I grew up doing mergers and acquisitions in venture capital in the law. Microsoft isn't going to go into this blind. I brought up an article from Arnold and Porter, Basics in Mergers and Acquisitions, Identification Provisions. This is the provision in a merger document that says you are going to owe us money if something bad happens, if you lied about something in your company or if something that we just weren't expecting happen. At the most basic level, as described here, the goal of indemnification is to provide the parties to a transaction with a streamlined means of seeking damages for issues that arise after the closing. So one of the things that will happen in the merger document is that Microsoft will ask Bethesda to promise that there is no litigation outside of the litigation that they disclose on a separate schedule. And then there will be an indemnification provision that says, OK, if you breach that Then you owe us money and then there'll be other indemnification sections generally called special indemnifications for things like known government regulatory actions known litigations that say okay up to this amount of dollars we are going to get paid by you we can hold that back from the purchase price we can put it in escrow to a third party we can do other things but those special indemnification items as this is described in this article are negotiated on a case-by-case basis Going back to their government investigation example, and we can use this pending litigation example, if a company is subject to a government investigation, it may take some time before the government formally files suit against the company for a claim associated therewith. Consequently, the buyer will advocate that the survival period for a related claim should be quite long, while the sellers will want to limit this period. This entire article is about negotiating these terms. But Microsoft will know that this exists. Bethesda will say something about its existence, And Microsoft will make sure that it is protected as much as it thinks is necessary. And if it isn't protected enough, the plaintiffs in this particular case, should they realize a multi-billion dollar return can go directly after Microsoft as the owners of the liability after the acquisition. So there's very little to go by here. The The article finishes as follows. The plaintiffs are asking to recover economic losses and damages suffered such as the $281 in content the lawyers say the DLC purchasers are entitled to. The lawyers are also asking for punitive damages, legal fees, pre- and post-judgment interest, and other relief. A trial might happen by 2022, but the risks are clear given the pending acquisition. If the actual damages alone are considered and the number of players owed the money is somewhere around 4 million, not unreasonable given the total population more than 13.5 million, then the actual damages could be 1.1 billion. Yes and no. When you establish what actual damages are, you actually have to show that they can't be redressed. Now, if Bethesda were to just open up the creative content section of their DLC and just say, hey, okay, if you have a season pass, you get this, that's the kind of settlement that a court's going to look at and say, well, what else do you want? You want to hit them for fraud. You want to hit them for punitive damages. Yes, the lawyers can get paid. But if Bethesda turns around and says that, it doesn't really hit their accounting books very much because they weren't selling out of that particular club in any event, But what does it really hurt? In fact, as a matter of fact, you get at the end of this article, the notion of that exactly. It's really hard to believe that the exposure would be that big, Hopps said. It seems like the easiest thing to do would be to open up the creation club to everyone who bought the season pass. Indeed, it would be. And that could be the kind of thing that happens as long as the lawyers get their fees. That's the settlement that we've seen in the past. Certainly, it's a settlement we saw just this last week with Epic settling one of their loot box controversies only for V-Bucks. Sorry, we didn't get to cover that in virtual legality yet. Maybe we'll do it in a future video. It's the kind of thing that we see described as coupon settlements in class actions where the lawyers get their big fees and then the class gets coupons for other valuable goods and services from the defendant corporations in question. So when I look at an article like this, the real reason I wanted to do this video is to just point out how much of a bullhorn this is for the plaintiffs who have their own motivations. They're well within their rights to have those motivations, but it doesn't present a balanced look at what the actual risks are. Given the actual requirements of preliminary injunctive relief that will have the assets of Bethesda and ZeniMax frozen, it's unlikely to happen. This is all, in my mind, a leverage play by the plaintiffs, more power to them, to try to get coverage like this in major outlets in order to encourage Bethesda and ZeniMax to settle with them on some basis for a lawsuit that isn't even new as of this week. Hopefully... That's a little bit eye-opening for you if you haven't followed this story, if you haven't followed other legal-based stories in the games industry or elsewhere, because it's very easy for journalists and outlets like this to just get taken over by one side or the other. And this isn't plaintiff-facing only. I've seen defendants do this as well, where the corporation is the only one that talks to a given journalist. They just report the defendant's side, and you, again, don't get that balance take. Hopefully you have a little bit better understanding of what's happening right now. And if you're excited about Microsoft buying Bethesda, you aren't nearly as worried about Fallout 4 DLC gumming up the works. This has been Virtual Legality for today. We are talking about the business and law of video games as well as other pop culture all the time. If you like this talk, if you like this content, please consider supporting the channel. We have a Patreon, we have Streamlabs, we have shirts to sell. And if none of that sounds good to you, Just subscribe, ring the bell, leave comments for the Google algorithm, and most importantly of all, tell your friends we're here. Every little bit of growth helps. Every little bit of growth helps Google continue to put these videos out where we think we can have the best part of the conversation. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality.